Hello and welcome back to Kyle Santona Monologue. In this episode we're going to be talking about the Babylon 5 Season 4 episode, The Illusion of Truth. Now, this is a really, really good episode, but also an uncomfortable episode. And it's uncomfortable in all the right ways. Um, this is an episode fundamentally about propaganda, the use of it as a weapon, as a demoralizer, uh, as brainwashing, and it tells it in such a way that you feel enraptured by it and incredibly uncomfortable with it. When I first watched this episode, when it finished, uh, I sat in silence for a good 5-10 minutes just processing it. It made me feel that uncomfortable. And when I uh, was talking to some friends afterwards and I just said, uh, you know, I, I just watched an episode of a TV show that deeply, deeply disturbed me, but yet was one of the best episodes in, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the series. And yet it's an episode so profoundly disturbing that it sometimes is it's just hard to watch and yet you love to watch it it's that kind of episode and i and i love media that does this uh media that bothers to ask questions of you the audience that dares to make you feel uncomfortable to make you change your perspective or give you a new perspective uh makes you think doesn't treat you as a passive audience and does not treat you as an idiot Babylon 5 is many things. It does not do any one of those. It completely and utterly asks you to be an active participant in its story. And that's the kind of media I really, really love. So let, let, let's get into the very beginning here before we get into the obvious uh, stuff with the, 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 uh, the propaganda news broadcast. Of the very beginning, we have several things. Uh, going on. First, we have the uh, deal with Sheridan and Ivanova in the war room. Uh, and there's this entire discussion about, uh, you know, the war is over. Why, why did you expect to see people in here? And, and Sheridan is like, I, to me, the war isn't over. And it is true. Uh, as he points out to Franklin later in the episode, you know, we are going to be dealing with the legacies of these, uh, of the shadows of the first ones. For many years to come, they had a profound impact on this galaxy for good knows how many thousands of years. Of course, just telling them to go away and them listening isn't going to get rid of their influence. They still have a lingering impact that is going to be felt for many, many, many years down the line. Uh, and then when we get introduced to uh, Dan Randall, the uh, uh, the reporter for the episode, he's doing all the stuff that you would expect from someone like him, a sleazy reporter like him, and yet it plays perfectly uh, for someone who is not used to certain things. So he, he he's going on he he's going on B five and it and he's being searched and all this stuff, and of course this is a pre nine eleven world so you know you weren't exactly searched, 
uh, when uh, regularly and had to go through a bunch of security when even going on domestic flights. Uh, that would change only a few years later, but um, B-5 is a military station. You're going to be searched regardless. Uh, because, just to give you an example, I live not too far away from a United States Air Force base. Uh, and matter of fact, some of my family have worked on that Air Force base because they were either members of the Air Force or a civilian contractor, such as my mother who cleaned, uh, military houses for a living for quite a while. Uh, and in order to get on the base, you had to have a, a particular ID. They would make sure it's valid. They would check you out. And in everything before they okayed you, you you can't just wander on a military base. Uh, and Babylon Five, despite being a diplomatic outpost, is run by a military governor. Congratulations, you don't have the rights to privacy. You're gonna be searched. Uh, but he's but Dan Randall is doing this to get on Zach's nerve. He is a sleazy reporter, after all, and what he wants most is you to be at a heightened state of emotions so that you do something rash and stupid that he can catch on camera. Which is exactly what Zack does for him. And we'll see this later throughout the episode as well. Just to give an example um, of the uh, of one of the tricks he does to uh, to really get on people's nerves is like that scene with Lanier in the elevator. Uh, the floating camera keeps bonking into Lanier's head. And one of the classical ways to get what you want in a biased piece of reporting like this is to get someone on the edge, like I was saying. And there are many ways to do that. You can put them in a particular uh, section of a room where light streams in so it gets in their eyes so it makes them squint, makes them seem angrier. You can uh, make them feel uncomfortable with uh, the temperature of the room. You can put this camera too close to them, violate their personal space, keep pestering them, deprive them of a break, deprive them of food, water, etc. You can do any number of things to make your interviewee feel uncomfortable, thus on edge, thus more likely to play to what you want. Act rashly, say the wrong things, etc. Uh... So, Walt not only is the linear scene absolutely fucking hilarious, but it also serves to demonstrate exactly what Dan Randall and his team of reporters are doing. Now, Dan Randall only says one true thing in this entire episode, and he is the forefront of most of the episode. But he only says one thing of substance. That is, the, object uh, the objective reporter is a myth. A myth we tell ourselves. And it's completely and utterly true. There is no such thing as objective reporting. There is no such thing as an objective reporter. Everyone is biased. Period. Plain and simple. Doesn't matter what your job is, who you are, you are biased. 
I am sitting down recording a podcast devoted to my own personal feelings on media. And in particular, I'm covering my favorite TV show of all time and my belief in its superiority to other TV shows and giving my thoughts and opinions on it. You are listening to it, and more than likely, if you found this series, you're either interested in who I am as a person, or you're interested in Babylon 5, and probably agree with me. Or if you don't, that's fine too, that is your opinion. That's the thing here, everybody has one. You know, you gather three people in the room, and you ask each person their opinion on a subject, and you're going to get six different opinions. And that's that's the situation here, is that a reporter's job is to report the facts, report the truth. The truth is objective. It does not take into uh, account anybody's feelings, anybody's personal beliefs, any bias, anything like that. But the truth is not exactly fluid, but it can be twisted, it can be bent to your own belief, to your own needs. And thus, that is why there is no such thing as an objective reporter. You go and look at a couple of news sources just on here, and I don't care if you're left, right, or anything in between uh, in as far as the politics are concerned. I really don't care. But you look at something like Fox News or CNN or the infamous UK newspaper The Sun, uh, and you, you, you see their willingness to twist facts edit interviews to fit their own narrative. And that's the thing with this, is something I've learned very early on. I, I love documentaries, don't get me wrong. I, I've even, I'm currently even working on one. Uh, but there are documentaries out there that are completely and utterly false. But we take them at their word because documentaries are seen as like this unbiased attempt to convey history or the truth or whatever. The problem is, is that when you as a storyteller come to understand the way documentaries work, documentaries have to have a narrative. Even if they're trying to tell the truth, they're still, they still have a narrative through line. And that narrative through line can take priority over telling the truth. And thus facts are omitted distorted or changed to fit that narrative through line. Now, not all documentaries distort the truth. Some use their narrative through line to tell not only an interesting story, but also present to you the truth. Uh, Ken Burns' documentaries are a, um, a example of this. Uh, having a narrative through line of some sort of feeling or emotion or personal journey that you the viewer can get attached to while also conveying the real information, the real history underlying these situations. And that that is what Dan Randall's doing, is everything he asks is trying to go along a narrative. Uh, and it's not the narrative he shows to everyone else. It's the narrative he's building for himself. Uh, Sheridan says that he went along with this because he knew that they were going to take pot shots at him. You know, he knows this is the second prong of a multi-pronged attack. You know, first the economic warfare of last episode, and now the um, 
the information warfare of this episode. So may as well see what they got, see what they can shoot at him, and try and work around it by shorting, uh, by uh, talking short declarative sentences in order not to be taken out of context. But Dan Randall is uh, capable of spinning his own narrative throughout the thing, so he asks leading questions that are not part of his narrative to get the answers he wants. So he asks Sheridan and Elaine about their marriage, for instance, knowing that he's going to get an emotional response about the power of love or something. So he can then, as we see in the actual uh, in, in the actual news broadcast section, they deliberately never have the camera pointed at Dan during the interview of Delenn and Sheridan, so that later on in the news broadcast, they get insert shots of Dan asking a question that was never asked in front of Delenn and Sheridan to then edit in the responses to another question to answer this new question that they had no context for, thus spinning the narrative that is wanted to be told by Dan Randall. It's a brilliant way of propagandizing, of twisting the truth. You got a real honest answer from your interviewee, but then you twist it to fit your own narrative. And, and this fits further with uh, William Adiri, uh, Indiri, uh, who is uh, brought in as sort of the psychological expert uh, that he shows up a couple times in the episode for Dan Randall to uh, I hypothesize to. And it's worth noting that everything Dan Randall points out is pure conjecture. Like, he never, ever... Uh, really lets the interviews speak for themselves, with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, and completely lets his narrative, his own talking points, override the interviews, thus making the entire point of the interviews mute and entirely conjectured. There is no facts or basis in what he is saying. But William Mendiri. He's the classic example of a pop psychologist. Um, a pop psychologist is someone who spouts pseudoscience and mumbo-jumbo to seem smart and uses that as credibility, usually finding some way to get themselves some sort of uh, prestigious degree or award or something, uh, or faking it in some cases, and then using that to gain fame and fortune and spin their own wild theories. Um, just to give an example, I, I'm i a big comic book fan. I, you know, I'm looking around my room and I see, uh, you know, uh, a framed picture of the DC Comics character Renee Montoya. I see a statue of Batman. I see a calendar of the indie comic Sunstone. Uh, so, like, that... Like, I'm a big comic book person. I've been a big comic book person since I was very young. Back back in the 30s and 40s, there was a psychologist by the name of Frederick Wortham who published a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, which claimed uh, that his repeated viewings of in, in, in analyses of children in juvenile detention, Juvie Hall, was that they loved comics. And from there, 
he said that comics were uh, something that was hurting our youth, dementing us, and turning us into something evil and vile. And his findings were complete and utter conjecture, had no scientific basis whatsoever, but were bought in enough by the general public that it forced the government to get involved uh, with, uh, with uh, the comic book industry, uh, forcing the comic book industry to create their own uh, grading agency, which forever hindered the comic book industry and the stories it's told, it told and the way it was perceived by the general public for decades. It's called the CCA, or the Comics Code Authority. The amount of damage these pop psychologists can do is extraordinary. And all it takes is a cult of personality and enough pseudoscience and mumble-jumble to make people believe you. Uh, and his entire uh, sections of this episode, once again, much like Dan Reynolds, is entirely conjecture. He does not cite sources. He does not, at any point in time, appear professional. Everything he says is from a casual interview standpoint. Uh, he even goes, well, I would never want to make a diagnosis from a long-distance perspective, but here's my diagnosis. You notice how that is completely, uh, you know, antithetical to what he just said. Uh, he is not taking this professionally, and thus what ISN did and Dan Randall did ultimately is he, they 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 bought credibility instead of bringing on an actual expert they bought the credibility of someone who is well known in social circles has some sort of a following and therefore by appearing there whether he has anything of substance to say or not is regardless of the point of the fact that they now have quote-unquote credibility because he has all these awards and all these degrees and by association the report and Dan Rundle himself have now inherited the credentials of these awards, of these degrees, etc. Uh, it's very deceptive reporting. Um, now, the uh, it's worth noting that the only thing, the only interview that goes relatively straightforward is Garibaldi's. Of course, we know... Uh, avoiding spoilers here, uh, that Garibaldi is under the influence of something. And Garibaldi isn't exactly himself, but he is partially himself. It's like Garibaldi has always been a suspicious, paranoid person. And one could argue that he is making a reasonable assumption about Sheridan that he has gotten some sort of messiah complex going on here. Um, because Sheridan did come back from Zaha Doom with more grit, more determination. And maybe that has to do with the fact that he was resurrected, or maybe that comes from the fact that, uh, you know, he had no other choice, or maybe that comes from the fact that he knows he only has 20 years to live, and knowing that you have a finite amount of time on this uh, plane of existence probably makes you want to get up and do shit before you go. Who knows? But he did come back different. And Garibaldi, someone who is paranoid and constantly suspicious, and as he admitted uh, way back in season three, he said, you know, I'm always afraid what would happen. Um, that 
it's reasonable for him to make these assumptions, but he would never speak them out loud. Maybe he would go to Sheridan personally and ask him, much like he did with Sinclair when he started to feel that Sinclair had a death wish. But he doesn't. Instead, he airs it out to the public, knowing full well that Dan Randall is going to air this to everyone on Earth in all its respective colonies that have not broken away. Uh, additionally, you notice the way Dan Randall approaches Garibaldi? From everyone else he interviewed, it was entirely from the perspective of a classic reporter going down a list of questions. With Garibaldi, it's much more personable. He sits down at the table with him, approaches him very casually, and is like, hey, we're about to go. Last person I need to talk to. Just talk about anything. I don't care. It could be about your experiences in the war, your anxieties, your opinions on Sheridan. I, I don't care. I just want to hear from you because you have a unique perspective. Very casual, very personable, very calm compared to his more uh, cold, journalistic approach to everyone else. And we, the audience, do not see the context of Garibaldi's interview. It is the only one we do not see. We then see it in the full broadcast and we see that it is the only one not chopped up in the pieces and then we edit it because it is a one one shot one take garibaldi speaking his mind then on to more dan randall conjecture it's because garibaldi was the one person to tell dan something that fit his narrative something he didn't have to change uh and we see this again uh, with the cryo the cryo beds you know they they snuck in got access to the cryo facilities which of course are the telepaths and and uh, the irony of him once again making conjecture about uh the reasoning for being there and then asking franklin and then franklin of course not at ease to tell him the situation so just sort of bypasses it by and then presumes that it is a uh you know some sort of secret issue whether it is or not you know is ridiculous but also the fact that the irony that it was the psychor who effectively put them there um it's kind of you know just a bit of an irony there now randall says something that uh, hilariously goes against uh, something Garibaldi said back in season one, both Garibaldi and Sinclair. He says the rule, oh, rule number three of journalism is people only lie when they have something to hide. There was an older episode back in uh, season one with Sinclair and Garibaldi having a conversation about how everyone lies. And this has been a sentiment that Garibaldi has had throughout every season. Everyone lies. Period. And the reason for that is that innocent people will lie because they're scared of the consequences if no one believes them and the truth. Uh, and guilty people will lie to save their skin. And those... And other people tell white lies to help others. Other people tell lies for their own personal benefit. You know, everyone lies at some point. It's not because you have something to hide. Sometimes it may be, but sometimes it's innocent. And the people who tell or are telling those lies could be innocent. 
so I, I find it interesting how um, it, it, con it, it sort of contrasts something, a theme from earlier, you know, three seasons ago to now. Um, now, the I, I really like how they go out of their way near the end to make it where Sheridan isn't the villain. It's the aliens, and he's just being taken advantage of. They paint a picture through editing, uh, and, it, and editing is power. That is something I need to mention. Editing is absolute power. Uh, you know, there are so many cases of, you know, movies being saved by their editors. Uh, Star Wars, the original episode four, was uh, was notoriously known for being very rough and near unwatchable until it was saved in the edit. Uh, and, you know, just go on YouTube and look up, uh, you know, editing means everything. And you'll find there, there was a series of videos that came out several years ago that took things like Shrek and re-edited their, their trailers to appear in different formats. Like, you know, Shrek is a animated family comedy. They edited it to make it seem like a horror film, an action film, uh, pornography. They can edit it to make it seem like anything they want because editing is power. And through this, they, and, uh, and, uh, in Deary's, you know, frankly, pop psychology-esque take on, uh, quote-unquote, a fake syndrome that is Membari War Syndrome, uh, which has no psychological basis and he never cites any sources on the matter, they make it seem like Sheridan is mentally ill in some capacity. And mental illness, being someone who is mentally ill, who has depression, I've seen repeatedly in, in real-life circumstances where mental illness is used as a scapegoat. Uh, uh, to say someone's not at fault for something or to point the blame at someone. It's been used for both. Uh, and it's ridiculous. Um, it, you know, um, mental illnesses do not define people, usually. Uh, and uh, should be taken into account, yes, but should not be diagnosed on someone who has not had a formal diagnosis. And with this fake diagnosis they give Sheridan, they paint a picture of a misguided man who is troubled in the head, who has fallen head over heels for a Mimbari, who's then used her influence over this guy to create a horrible eugenics experiment uh, and, and whatnot. And it's it's complete and utter conjecture, naturally, but also it it speaks to ISN's human-centric viewpoint. Uh, Earth is not responsible. Humanity is not responsible. It's the aliens, you see. Uh, and that just speaks to the xenophobia that has been sprouting around Earth since back in Season 1. Uh, and... At the very tail end there, the, the, the last few minutes, I think, are particularly powerful. But uh, notice how Dan Randall just casually, as he's doing his wrap-up, slips in, you know, Sheridan's father, whose farm burnt down, still missing. You know, because he knows Sheridan's going to be watching. 
And as pointed out in the early part of the episode, Sheridan is worried about his father because his father was an ex-diplomat. Uh, there's no way he can stay out of the limelight and hide forever. And he is n not only is he an ex-diplomat, but now he is the son of a rebel. You know, uh, that that's painting a really big target on his head. And he's scared for his family and his father, rightfully so. And so since Dan Randall knows that Sheridan's going to be watching, slip that in. Add to that anxiety. You know, they're they're doing information war on him. Economic warfare and information warfare currently against Babylon 5. Stoke the flames. Uh, you know, pull the, uh, pull the rag out from underneath them. It's the plan. And that's what they're doing perfectly. And those last few seconds where all audio just exits uh, the episode and we just watch as Ivanova steams out of the room, furious, uh, you know, Sheridan sitting melancholically looking out a window. Uh, Delenn goes to comfort her, but can't, can't find the words and just so leaves the room. Also sad, also furious. And then Sheridan goes to walk away. And then notices the Iason is still on. And the one sound that, uh, you know, penetrates the noiselessness, the weightiness of the scene is the click as the television is turned off. It's a very powerful moment. And as I said, when I first watched this, I felt sick. And I sat in silence for several minutes. It profoundly hit me in a way that I was not expecting. Now, I have a question for you guys. You can feel free to email me at kyle.j.share at gmail.com or uh, send in a voice message through Anchor or private message me, whatever, on whatever uh, listening, uh, you know, applications you're using. Hopefully I'll get alerted to it. Of your opinion. On this one thing because I think this episode is really 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 good as my past you know however long I've been talking uh, probably has put that in perspective but I think it can be better what I think it should have been done is we never see the context of the interviews back in season two one of my favorite episodes was and now for a word which was an episode entirely from the perspective of a reporter coming on Babylon 5 and watching the political situations unfold. What if this entire episode was the ISM propaganda report? We, the audience, are personally connected to Sheridan and Vonova and Delenn and Garibaldi and Franklin and everybody else that was interviewed. We know who they are. And we would know through understanding them for the past four seasons that everything said is taken out of context. Because they're, if it was in context, they're incredibly out of character. And we watch as Dan Randall spins his, his story, his narrative of a mentally ill man taken advantage of by aliens to commit eugenics. Uh, and has uh, and horribly mistreats humans, you know, and I think that would be more effective because seeing it from the eyes of the ordinary human Earth citizen that has to deal day in and day out with this propaganda machine, I think it would have been fascinating and hell of a lot more uncomfortable. It was already uncomfortable. Imagine how more uncomfortable that would be if 
more than half the episode was devoted to this propaganda. I don't know. I just think it would have been a far better episode. It was already an amazing episode, but it can be better. Uh, and I think the, the in recent years, um, you know, uh, after this episode was made, we have the 24-hour news cycle and and stuff like this and you know especially the uh, 2016 to 2020 uh in which we had a sitting president in the united states who actively refuted facts who actively encouraged biased reporting uh that painted him in good light who claimed any uh any negative opinion on him was fake news i think that would hit harder if the entire 43, 45 minutes, however long, was all propaganda for Clark. You know, the 21 minutes we get already hits hard enough. Imagine if it was all the episode. Um, but that's just my opinion. Once again, fantastic episode. Uh, and I shall see you next time. Bye. Bye.